buddy. Charles Dickens famously wrote in his novel, The Tale of Two Cities, he said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct the other way. And Dickens wrote that at the beginning of his novel, Tale of Two Cities, to describe what was going on in London and in Paris just prior to the French Revolution. And today, we're continuing to look at the Gospel of John. I know we haven't read any of John yet because I want us to hear the word of the Lord from the other Testament, be able to understand how it all kind of pulls together. But today, as we continue looking at the Gospel of John, we come to a scene that when we look at it in light of all of Scripture, we might be able to say some very similar words. In fact, we've read about the cup of God's wrath, and yet the cup that God is now taking from his people. We also read that there will be no shame for his people anymore. And I So in in talking about this Dickens poem, if you will, and looking at the entirety of scripture, we can we might be able to say those same things about two different gardens. The garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and the garden of Gethsemane as we read it in our next section in in John's gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. So if you have your Bibles and want to open to John 18, let me encourage you to be there. You may want to flip back and keep a finger in uh, Genesis 3. We're going to go back and forth quite a lot. But in the midweek email, I want to just help you understand how I got to this, how, how it is that we're going to look at these two gardens together. And and in the midweek email, I challenged you to read John chapter 18. I told you to send me an email if you need a hint. I got one email this week. I gave one hint, which means everybody else must have gotten it. So you already know that right at the beginning of John chapter 8, so in, in Scripture, sometimes we have these brackets. Theologians call them inclusios, like inclusions. So you have a bracket on one side and a bracket on the other side, and you've got to kind of pay attention to what's in the middle. Well, the inclusio begins in chapter 18, verse 1, where John writes, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And then we see another reference to that. Now, there's a lot of activity in the garden, but there's another reference that is detached, which means, wait, we got to go back and think about this some more. Look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, um, a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So now you have these two brackets. And because after the very next verse, Peter denies it, and we'll get to that in a moment, but things begin to change. And so we're no longer in the garden. We're no longer looking at it. So it's though John wants us to think garden. Well, there's another garden, right? The garden of Eden. The other gospel accounts help us to understand that this garden where Jesus and his disciples are is the garden of Gethsemane. Say that 10 times really fast. Gethsemane. I've been misspelling it all week long. 
And so as I was preparing, I was helped this week by comments from a guy named Joel Beakey, and I'll, I'll read that for you in a little bit. Um, but it got me thinking about a comparison between Eden and Gethsemane. And so today we're going to compare and contrast the events that happened in and around these two significant gardens as we consider really a tale of two gardens. And you may notice that your outlines are set up quite differently. They're not, normally I give you fill in the blank things and we don't have any of that. It's all very free form. So those of you who like to doodle, this is your day to doodle. And you'll notice on one side in your bulletin, you have Eden and you've got various things going on. Uh, the, the setting, you've got uh, the protagonist, the antagonist, you've got the conflict, all these things. And on the other side, you've got Gethsemane. And so we're going to look at what's happening, who these people are, what's going on in there. So feel free to draw or take notes or, or however you'd like to do that. And, and I, I do want to say that while we're talking about this somewhat from a, a standpoint of a drama, I think it's important for us to realize that Scripture sees the events of Genesis chapter 3 and the events of John 18 as history. So while we're thinking about it, while we're processing it through the lens of drama, we can't mistake it for fiction. It is history. These things happened, and it's good that we would learn from them, but I think there are significant things that we can learn. So as we go through, we're going to be looking at some theological and some practical things that we can glean from this. So let's begin with the setting. Every good drama has a, a setting, and so let's start with Eden. The first garden is Eden. We can read about Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, but our, for our purposes, we're going to look at Genesis 3, since the events of this chapter have uh, has significant luxuries. Now, Eden means garden of luxuries. It means pleasure. It means something pleasant. It, we could almost say paradise. It is the place where, where God told the first humans to reside. He said, this is your home. Be here. And God was also with them. He interacted with these first humans in that space. It was a place of peace. So as we go through, when you hear Eden, when you hear that word, I want you to think paradise. I want you to think peace. I want you to think pleasure. That is everything that God intended Eden to be. By contrast, the second garden that we're considering is Gethsemane. We can read specifically about where the name comes up in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. And I believe that as John is unveiling his narrative here in John 18, he's talking about the very same garden, even though he doesn't refer to it by name. But Gethsemane means oil press. You see, this was a garden that was, that was surrounded by olive trees. And so what do you get from olive trees? You get olives. And what do you do with olives? You press them to get olive oil, which was, that region was known for. This oil press garden, Gethsemane, was located outside of Jerusalem. And so when you hear Gethsemane, I want you to hear press or pressure. I want you to hear pain. So with the setting established, let's consider some of the characters. Namely, in Eden, we're going to begin with the protagonists, right? These are Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the very first humans. We can read two different accounts of their creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Being these first two humans, Scripture suggests that all of humanity is descended from Adam and Eve. 
Now, I know not everyone believes that, but Scripture is established on the fact. All Scripture hangs on the idea, so much of Scripture hangs on the idea that Adam and Eve started it all. What they did, we inherited. And, And there are some significant things to that. But there's another protagonist that we get to see, and that is God. In Eden, God was there. God was present. He interacted with with Adam and Eve, being the creator of the universe and in fellowship with first humans. He is present and plays a significant role. Let's go to the other garden. Who are the protagonists over there? In Gethsemane, we have Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples have just finished sharing a meal together. We've been reading about that, studying it for the last few weeks. We called it Jesus' last will and testament. They've been having this meal. Jesus washed their feet. Jesus even prayed, as we read last week, a prayer of consecration for himself, for his disciples, and for us. And then after the prayer, they left the city and went across the, this riverbed into the Garden of Gethsemane, into, onto the Mount of Olives, where this garden was. So we have the setting. We have the protagonist. And with every good story, we need a villain, right? We need antagonists. And so these, there's various individuals and groups that act in contrast to the main characters, and they force our protagonist to respond. First of all, in Eden, we have the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I believe that this serpent represents Satan. Maybe Satan embodied him or possessed the snake or simply is speaking to him. We're going to see in a few moments that the snake speaks. I know snakes don't talk, but it's something we need to consider. In the other garden, in Gethsemane, we have some other antagonists. We have the soldiers. We have Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. We have religious leaders, and then we have servants, Let's look at the beginning part of this in chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus was, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. For So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now Judas and the soldiers aren't the only antagonists. They aren't the only ones who are part of this. We also have some religious leaders. Because once Jesus is arrested and the disciples are freed, everything else happens. Now here's something important to pay attention in the, in the scenery. They, they remove Jesus from the garden. The disciples go free. Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the house of a guy named Annas. Look at chapter 18, verses 12 and 13. So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested him and bound, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now here's something very interesting that I, I found very interesting. And it, talks, it speaks volumes about influence. Annas had been the high priest in the early part, probably about, the, I think he was deposed around uh, 15 AD, so the first part of the century. He was taken out by Roman rulers. And these rulers basically said, we don't like the way you're leading your people, so get out. But 
he still had influence. So in many ways, Annas becomes the high priest emeritus in the eyes of the Jewish leader. So his sons and his son-in-law become the high priest. Well, if your sons and your son-in-law are high priests, what does that make you? You have a big voice and a lot of influence, which is why I think Jesus is taken to Annas's house first before he goes to see Caiaphas, before he goes to the Sanhedrin, before he goes under a religious trial. Annas wants to, attest, to, to assess the situation so that he can advise his son-in-law, this is what I think is going on. The other religious leaders that we get to see is a guy named Caiaphas, and he is appointed as high priest. In fact, uh, we don't have this on the screen, but notice in verse 14, it says, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient for that one man should die for the people. And you can read about when Caiaphas made that prophecy. It's in John chapter 11, verse 50. He went back and he said that Jesus would die not only for all the people, but to bring into one all the people of God. Caiaphas had prophesied that. So of course, in their mind, they're thinking, hey, it's God's will that Jesus would die. So finally, there's another group of people that we run into. Not only do we have Judas and the soldiers, not only do we have Annas and the other religious leaders, but we have servants. We have a, specifically a servant girl who becomes a, a very key player in some of this. So we have the setting and the characters. And now, with, as with every good story, we need conflict. What is the conflict that we see? And first of all, in Eden, we have the conflict centering around the fact that this snake, this serpent, questions Eve. Look at chapter 3, Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent is here having this conversation with Eve and really introduces her this, uh, this idea of doubt, this idea of questioning God, this idea of being like, are you sure you want to obey this God who is holding back something from you? On the other side, in Gethsemane, we actually have four points of conflict that we need to consider. Judas, he leads, so the first is with Jesus and the soldiers. Judas leads this group of soldiers to the garden to, uh, in order to fulfill his betrayal. And then Judas kind of steps aside. He lets the soldiers take it all. And these soldiers are likely either Roman soldiers who have been appointed by the military leaders to serve in the temple, which is why, if you notice, we read it earlier, it says that Judas got these people from the Jews, from the religious leaders. Or these guys are Jewish security forces, kind of like our greeters, making sure that the high priests are safe. They would be a little bit more than our greeters are. Um, but they would protect the temple. But look at what it says in chapter 18, verses 4 to 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So again, 
Whom do you seek? And they, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. What's so interesting here is that Jesus isn't trying to run. He's not trying to hide. In fact, if anything, he confronts these soldiers. It's as though John is helping to see Jesus is fully in charge. He's stepping up and saying, hey, guys, how are you doing? Good to see you. Who are you here to see? Oh, that's me. You want me? Here I am. Oh, no. It's almost like these guys are expecting a fight. These, are, these guys are expecting a revolt, and they don't know what to do with this unarmed teacher. He's not what they were prepared for, even though he is acting completely consistently with his character. He's acting to protect his disciples, and he's trying to, de- to defuse the situation. So you have this first conflict, Jesus standing up on behalf of his character on behalf of his disciples. But then there's a second conflict. And this is between Peter and the soldiers. And Peter, ever ready to take a fight, ever ready for a fight, he takes out his sword and takes action. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So then Jesus again steps in to diffuse the situation and brings peace. Verse 11. So Jesus said, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And while John doesn't give us all the details, we could read in Luke's account that Jesus actually heals the man's ear and puts it back. Which, by the way, as you're reading through Scripture, you're going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to read these four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And I want to encourage you, as you see them, notice that their broad timelines are very consistent. But notice that when we we begin to get to the details, there's some diversity. There's some differences there. And And I want you to understand that each of these gospel writers are writing from a certain perspective. They're writing to a specific audience. They're writing for a certain reason. So some details, the fact that Luke decided to show us that his ear was healed wasn't important to John. John doesn't care because he's going to show up later in a different situation. But it Part of that is just the beauty of Scripture. We get Matthew's perspective here and Mark there and Luke there and John here. And and they're all looking at Jesus from a different angle, helping us understand the beauty of who he is. So we've seen Jesus with the soldiers. We've seen Peter with the soldiers. And now we get Jesus with with the priest. And again, after they arrest Jesus, the soldiers take him to the house of Annas, the emeritus high priest, where John tells us that he is questioned. Look at verses 18 and 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand and said, is that how you answer the high priest? Notice high priest emeritus. He's not really in charge. And Jesus answered him, if, I, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. 
but if what I said was right, why do you strike me? And it's interesting, notice that John doesn't tell us anything that Annas says. We don't hear any of Annas' questions, only that he came to question Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And so several commentators suggested that John is helping us to see that Jesus is still in control. In the garden, he asked the, the soldiers. Here at Annas' house, he's confronting Annas. He's saying, hey, if I say I was public, and that's not to say that he didn't do things in private, but the things he did in private often explained what he spoke in public. And Jesus is saying, look, I was out there. Why do you question me? Ask those who are teaching. Ask those who heard what I taught. But it's clear that Jesus is in control. In fact, Jesus is willingly laying down his life for his friends, as he talked about in John 15, 13. Jesus is not hiding or subverting in any, anything, but the claims that are brought against him seem to have no merit or impact, and his accusers have no ground for their actions against him. But there's one final conflict that we get to see and that is between Peter and the servants. Jesus, in John 13, 38, just a couple of hours earlier, just a couple of hours before this event has taken place, predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And so it's now that we finally get to see that it's in the courtyard of Annas where we get to see these happen. And notice this first one. It's a bold-faced lie. I mean, they're all denials. They're all falsehoods. He is purging himself, if you will, perjuring himself. But look at the setting. John chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So then, of course, guilty by association, right? Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. We don't know who that is. And the disciple that was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So you kind of see the situation. Peter and this guy have both been with Jesus. Now Jesus is inside with this guy and Peter's on the outside. So this guy comes and says, hey, psh, let him in. So watch this. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are not one of his disciples, are you? Look at the context. He's been following him. He's with this other guy. And Peter says, I am not. Oh. Now Again, we don't know who that unnamed disciple is. A lot of people have speculated. I'm not going to try. And yet he, Peter is guilty by association, and yet he denies it. I just think it's It's amazing. And then just a short time later, Peter is confronted again, verse 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing out warming himself, and they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, get this, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Guilty. Guilty, guilty. And yet he couldn't stand firm. 
So this ferocious disciple who was willing to take up arms in the garden and willingly lay down his life for Jesus just a few hours earlier in the upper room in John 13, 37, could not stand with his rabbi in front of servants. You, now you have this class warfare thing going on. He's with servants and he can't stand up in front of them. I realize I'm being a little hard on Peter but I want you to understand what's happening, the scene, things like that. So then there's a response. It's the conflict ensues and we get the responses. So let's go back to Eden. Let's look at what's happening in Eden. Remember, Eve had just been confronted by the servant in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree should be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So essentially Eve gives in. She saw the fruit, she assessed it. She heard the testimony from the serpent and realized, oh man, I can have wisdom like God if I just eat this. Here you go, Adam. She gives in, Adam buckles he ate the fruit, and then what's worse, he didn't keep his wife from stumbling. He just watched. Hmm, let me see what happens. Husbands, do we let our wives get into problems? <laughs> but then there's a secondary conflict that arises. This time, because now the protagonists, Adam and Eve, have become the antagonists to God. Genesis 3, 19 to, 9 to 13 but the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? <laughs> and the man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the response to this secondary conflict with God is that both Adam and Eve refuse to take responsibility. They don't say, I did it, guilty as charged, no. You know, Adam even go, seems to go to the place where he says, he gave me this woman. It's her fault. I mean, it's your fault, God. And then when God confronts Eve, she blames the serpent and deceit, but ultimately confesses. And while the serpent was shrewd, in some ways he was not necessarily lying. Their eyes were open. They did know good and evil. As tragic as, as, tragic as it is. So let's push pause on Eden and go back to Gethsemane. Let's look at the responses to the conflict in Gethsemane. First of all, we already saw that Peter denied Jesus. He's given these opportunities to stand up in front of servants, and yet he doesn't. But conversely, where we have seen failure everywhere else so far, we see that Jesus stands firm. When confronted in the garden, he doesn't run, and he even moves to protect his disciples. When confronted at Annas' house, he pushes back on his accusers and does not compromise. He stands firm. 
which brings us to some final outcomes. And here's that really, the, so what is the result of these encounters in the two gardens? First of all, in Eden, God acts. In Eden, God acts. First of all, he curses the serpent, Adam, and Eve. He gives them a punishment. He, he, he disciplines them. And there's a lot that we can cover here, but for the sake of time, let's just highlight a couple of things. God curses the serpent, takes his legs away from him and causes him to crawl around on his belly. And then he makes a promise that we'll get to in just a moment about something that's going to happen in the future. And then to the woman, to Eve, in, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, And I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So remember, just, well, you may not remember, but just a chapter earlier, two chapters earlier, God had told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Be stewards over all of creation. This is yours for your enjoyment. And now the joy of childbirth and the fulfillment of God's creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply would now come through pain. And beyond that, where it seemed like there should have been companionship and partnership, there is conflict and strife between husband and wife. So God not only disciplines the serpent and he disciplines Eve, but then he disciplines or curses Adam. And he said to Adam in verse 17 to 19, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And again, the stewardship and the work that Adam was given at the beginning would now be fraught with pain and difficulty. The joy would only come through sorrow. Satisfaction would only come through sweat. But this is where the the. the the Eden account and the Adam and the Gethsemane account come, well, actually, this is where it comes down to you and me. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they introduced sin to the entire human race. We were intended to live for a very, 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 very long time. In fact, probably live eternally with God in fellowship, perfect fellowship with him. But the moment sin entered into the thing, now death becomes a reality for all of us. But corruption also becomes a reality for all of us. Since all of us, all of humanity started with them, all of humanity is stained by the curse of sin and all of humanity stands in shame and condemnation. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, we are by nature children of wrath. Now, I know it's easy to look at them and turn to God and say, God, it's not fair. They screwed up. Why should I have to suffer? Why should our world have all the tragedy and the mess that it has? God, why? And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to answer the question, are we guiltless? Has there ever been a day when some thought or word or deed that we have uttered has, not been a, has been a, an offense to God? Can we live perfectly? 
No. So lest we want to place, place too much blame on Adam and Eve, we stand guilty. And God knows that. But you see, God didn't simply curse them and by extension us by allowing sin now to permeate our natural bodies. You see, the next thing we learn is that in his grace and mercy, God covers Adam and Eve's shame. When Adam and Eve saw that they were naked, they made a feeble attempt to cover up. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Then both of, the eye, both of their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then a few verses later, but God actually ended up sacrificing an animal to sufficiently cover their shame. Genesis 3, 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Look at the grace of God in that. He could have just said, get out, go with your plant-based clothing. But no, in his grace, he provided something so much more. And then he does act in another way. He curses them, he covers their shame, but he banishes them. This is an act of discipline where, look at verses, uh, 20, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at, and, and at the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away every, turned every way to guard uh, the way to the tree of life. So now that place of peace, that place of prosperity, that place of blessing that Adam and Eve were called to be in with God, they are now punished. They have been banished. Now that tree of life is no longer any point of access for humanity. The fellowship that humanity enjoyed in the beginning is now severed by sin and the delight that God intended in Eden has been withheld. But we are not without hope because there's one last thing, that one last way that God acts and that is that God promised. There is a promise of a descendant of the woman who would step in, who would, be, who would not be unharmed but would provide a devastating harm to the serpent. Look back in Genesis 3.15. As a part of the curse to the serpent, God said this. He said, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is where the two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane, begin to interact. This is where they, where they overlap. Because throughout the Old Testament, there were promises of an anointed one to come. Here's the very first one. Hey, there's, there's a seed of the woman who's coming who will crush the head of the serpent. 
God promised an offspring from the woman. Jacob promised an eternal ruler from Judah's line in Genesis 49, 8 to 12. Moses promised a prophet like himself in Deuteronomy 18, 15. Isaiah promised a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities in Isaiah 52 and 53. You see, Jesus is that promised one, that ruling king, that suffering servant. What starts in the Garden of Eden is culminated and redeemed in Gethsemane and ultimately on this, in this other garden, on this other hill called Golgotha. You see, in a matter of hours from now, Jesus' arrest and trial before the religious leaders, followed by another trial before political leaders, which we'll consider next week. Jesus would be wrongfully accused, beaten, and then crucified on a hill called Golgotha. And in response to humanity's sin and betrayal and, their, and our denial, we see again that in Gethsemane and that whole scene, Jesus acted. The actions that, follow, that Jesus allowed to happen to him, his beating and crucifixion, his death and burial, in all of that, Jesus received our curse. The curse that was on us from the fall in the Garden of Eden was now absorbed by Jesus' perfect obedience in another garden. Where God covered the sin and shame of Adam and Eve temporarily with the skin of an animal, God promised and then promised something in the future. Jesus covered our sin eternally. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Where Adam and Eve and all humanity have been banished from the Garden of Eden and experienced a broken fellowship with God, Jesus restored our fellowship. In fact, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The very moment that Jesus died, the other gospel writers help us see that now there's this veil in the temple between the holy place, the most holy place and the holy place where, where nobody was allowed to go except for once a year, but that has now been torn from top to bottom. Fellowship has been restored between God and humanity we no longer need a mediator. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He, Jesus, restored what we broke. And then finally, in Gethsemane and ultimately on Golgotha, we see that Jesus fulfilled God's promises. The promise of a descendant from the woman. You see, Jesus didn't have a human father. And we see that in the other accounts. He is the son of God and the son of Mary. Luke 1.35 says, And the angel said to her, To Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Sin and death came as a result of Adam and Eve's actions. They have been now redeemed by Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and Golgotha.
But there's more where Peter denied Jesus, the outcomes of Jesus' actions in the garden and so and, and on Golgotha result in Peter's restoration. And we're gonna see that in a few weeks when we get to that. So I don't wanna take time now, but Peter is restored. Jesus welcomes him back and says, Peter, go and do what I've called you to do. Don't worry about that. So do you see how these two gardens intersect? How they collide? The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. And they all do that around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Joel Beakey, as I mentioned earlier, he summarized it this way, referring to Jesus as the last Adam. He writes, it was no accident that Gethsemane was called a garden in John 18, 1 and 26. For there Christ worked to undo what Adam had done in another garden. The first Adam was surrounded by pleasure, but disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. The last Adam was, was pressed by sorrow, but obeyed God in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam was conquered by Satan. The last Adam conquered Satan. The first Adam reached out to take the fruit that God had forbidden. The last Adam received the cup that God had commanded. The first Adam tried to hide himself from the penalty of his sin. The last Adam voluntarily exposed himself to the penalty of our sins. The first Adam was driven out of Eden by a holy God. The last Adam willingly allowed sinners to lead him out of Gethsemane so that he would lead sinners to a better paradise. Outside of the first garden, there's a, the burning sword of, of divine wrath was unsheathed. Outside of a latter garden, the sword of divine wrath struck down Christ for our salvation. Praise be to God. Christ has regained all that Adam lost and so much more. So what is our response? How do we take these two accounts, these two historical accounts, these dramas and understand what God has done? How do we apply that? And I think there are six things you'll notice in your outline. I put three repents and three praises or three rejoices. And these are way too long for you to write, so just get the gist of it. But the first is this, when we need to repent, when in our nature we buckle under the pressures of threats resulting in rebellion as Adam and Eve did or denial as Peter did. We need to repent when we fail to stand firm. Secondly, we need to repent when we seek an easy way out rather than the way that most glorifies God. And Peter demonstrated this when he pulled out his sword and chopped off that guy's ear. Thirdly, we need to repent when our actions betray our Savior the way that Judas did. How often do we have opportunities to stand up for God only to say, ah, oh. But we also have reason to rejoice. We have so many more reasons to rejoice, but here are three. Rejoice in the freedom obtained by Jesus. We are no longer under that curse of the original sin. We still, we're still plagued with it, but we are no longer, if you've been set free from that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are no longer under that curse. The death that, they, that, the death that we deserve is, is, was taken by Jesus Christ. Rejoice in that. Rejoice, secondly, in the freedom obtained by Jesus. I'm sorry. 
Rejoice in the goodness and good news of Jesus. He has shown us mercy and grace. Just as God covered Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus covered our sin with his perfect body. Oh, oh, what goodness, what good news. And then finally, we can rejoice in the, fi- in the trials we face, knowing that they are producing an eternal outcome as we see in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. So I want to just encourage you, friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you've not yet responded to God's call in your life to receive by faith the salvation that Jesus offered that was started in that garden of Gethsemane, that was culminated on that hill called, that we call Calvary, that is called Golgotha on a tree like this with thorns like that on it. Ted. He didn't do that just because he's a glutton for punishment. He did that because that's what our sin, what your sin and mine deserved. He bore that for you. Have you trusted in him? Have you responded? Repent of your sin. Turn and trust in him.